Welcome to the Life of Christ series 2, term 3, and this is lesson 26. We're going to continue where we left off in John chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says that when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. All right, William Hendrickson says that even though Mary merely mentioned the need, the hint was clear enough, Mary expected a miracle. She's not going to say something to him and not expect something back. Are you here? Now as to whether the wine being spoken of here, and subsequently the wine Jesus replaces it with, was alcoholic or non-alcoholic grape juice, has been a subject of great debate. So let's take a brief look at that now. According to William Hendrickson, in Palestine, grapes ripen from June to September. There is accordingly no good reason to suppose that wine served at weddings, which took place during the period of October through May, would be anything less than fermented grape juice. In other words, actual wine. What most people fail to realize is that in the Old Testament, wine, not grape juice, regardless of all the arguments, all right, was considered to be a staple or normal article of food. For example, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, not grape juice, okay, but actual wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. All right. Next in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 20, the Lord speaking to Moses says, The priests shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priests. I'm not going to go into all that. Together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Okay? Right? Not grape juice, wine. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 26, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says to them, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. Did you catch the sentence? Okay, wine or other fermented drink. Obviously the wine was fermented. Alright? And he says, or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. (gasps) Really? You can drink wine in the presence of God? Yes! (laughs) Alcoholic wine! And God won't get upset. Okay, in fact, it's a scripture. Anyway, even in the New Testament, since the water was often contaminated, wine was one of the few medical aids available to Timothy. And so, the Apostle Paul says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Alright? So now, even though wine or alcoholic grape juice was a common article of food, here's the balance, okay? Because of its intoxicating character, its use was definitely restricted. And in fact, in connection with the carrying out of certain duties, it was forbidden. For example, the Lord said to Aaron, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, now we need to read these carefully, okay? So I'm not going to race through these now. It says, you and your descendants must never drink wine or any other... See, brother, see, it says you must never drink wine. This is how people preach, okay? Can we go back and read the verse again? Let's go back and read the verse. He says, you and your descendants must never drink wine or any other alcoholic drink before... Going into the tabernacle. Did we get that? Did you see that? He said, before you start a church service, don't be drunk. Okay? (laughs) You want to drink, do it some other time. No, when you're going to the tabernacle. Did you get that? Because this is how people preach, and I want you to become wise. 
I want you, when somebody says something and it goes funny in your spirit, you, you just get like a little flag going up, red flag, you know what I'm saying? Okay, and you think, this doesn't sound right. Go read the verse and read it carefully. I will guarantee you somewhere in there, there will be something to let you know the context of the verse and what's actually going on, not what the guy is preaching. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, all of you are ministers now. Okay, just because somebody preach it and they do it so well, don't take their word for it, go check it out. Especially when you get a little flag. There are other things, man, people preach and you just go, wow, that's right, and it sits right, and everything is good. So don't worry about that stuff. I'm just saying, if ever a little flag goes up, okay, go check it out. Alright, and he says, if you do, you will die. Now see, yeah, God doesn't want you drunk in that place. Okay, but isn't it interesting... When we put that in view of the verse I read to you uh, two verses ago, when he says in Deuteronomy 14.26, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, all right, and eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. See, now, are you all with me? He says, if you're not running a church service, okay, you can get happy. But if you're running one day, the congregation don't want to see you staggering and falling. And he says, this is a permanent law for you, and it must be kept by all future generations. So I do not get drunk before I come up here and preach. <laughs> okay? In fact, I never do. Did it once, it was enough. When I was, yay, high. Okay? I was bad. Almost died. Anyway, but I'm not against people drinking. And I know people have all sorts of issues about it. And I say, listen, dude, here's the key. If it's controlling you, don't. If you're in control, okay. But if it's in control, then no. Walk away. So yes, the Bible does know what it's on about. Okay. <laughs> and we need to listen to it. In Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, King Solomon says, it is, listen to this very carefully. It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. Listen. Lest they drink and forget what is decreed. And pervert the rights of all the afflicted, or deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Because, you know, you drink, and you don't know what you're saying, and you say yes to someone, and, you know, you forget. Further to all this, in the words of William Hendrickson, excessive indulgence was always definitely condemned. With Isaiah saying in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7, Now, however, Israel is being led by drunks. The priests and prophets reel and stagger from beer and wine. Now, you know, you can't do that on grape juice. You can't reel and stagger on grape juice. Are you all with me? Okay, so, you know, you, I don't care what people say. When they say wine, that's what they mean. All right. It says, the priests and prophets reel and stagger from beer and wine. They make stupid mistakes as they carry out their responsibilities. That's the reason why you don't drink. Because you do dumb things. Amen? That's the reason why the Apostle Paul also says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2, 3, and 8, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness. Can I just say this? The only reason you would put that in there was if people were drinking wine. And it was okay. But it wasn't okay for you to be drunk. If they didn't have wine in the house at all, you wouldn't say drunkenness. It would just say not given to wine. Do you see what's not there? 
We need to see, we need to understand. Amen? He says, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. Again, there is a clarification there. It's quantified. It's saying not given to much wine. It's like, yeah, okay, drink wine, but please don't get drunk. And not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, you know, I could preach on that too. It didn't say not pursuing gain, it said dishonest gain. See, all of these are things that people say, see, you shouldn't have any gain. No, do dishonest gain. There's a difference. Besides the fact that it is a sin to become intoxicated, this also proves conclusively that whenever wine is mentioned, that's exactly what it is, fermented grape juice. And therefore, when Jesus turned water into wine, that's exactly what it was. Can we get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. If there is still doubt, D.A. Carson states, the wine that was needed was not mere grape juice. When we look ahead in verse 10, the head steward expects that at this point in the celebration, some of the guests would have had too much to drink. The verb, that word, does not refer to consuming too much liquid or grape juice, but to inebriation. Did you get all of that? Alright. So it's riddled all through the passage. If you see it, if you read it, if you want to know the truth, it's there. If you don't, well, there's not much we can do. Now, returning to John chapter 2. Following Mary's comment to Jesus in verse 3 about the wine running out, it goes on to say in verse 4, Now Jesus said to her, perceiving her expectation for a miracle, (laughs) He says, woman, now this is a common designation, alright? Absolutely no disrespect is intended. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. All right. Leon Morris writes, The meaning of my time or hour has not yet come in the context is surely it is not yet time for me to act. See, he hadn't started doing anything yet. He's saying, this isn't the right time. Okay, it's a time and a place. This isn't it. All right? But he's going to do something anyway. All right? In other words, D.A. Carson points out, what do you do with a mother that says that? You know, honor your parents. You know, that, that, that one. All right, so D.A. Carson points out, Jesus declares at the beginning of his ministry, he's out of freedom. Listen carefully to this. From any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Neither Mary nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track. A lesson when Peter had to learn. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this we should honor her the more. It was a hard thing for her to sort of not have any special privilege. Anyway, however, regardless of what Jesus said, Mary knew him enough to know that if the situation was brought to his attention, he would do something about it. Because he truly did care for people. Amen? See, now we're starting to see Jesus. Okay? But because this had nothing to do with ministry, what's going to follow is a display of power that we would not normally see, nor thought possible. It goes in the say in John chapter 2 and verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Okay? This shows us that Mary not only trusted in Jesus' resourcefulness, 
but also in his love and compassion for others. And so fully expected a miracle. She just knew. It didn't matter. We'll do it. My time has not come. Whatever. Whatever he says, do it. You see where we're going with this? Okay. But what's even more astonishing is that Mary actually knew Jesus enough to know to say to the servants what essentially amounted to, even if what he says seems unreasonable or foolish, no matter what you think about it, just do it. Nike ad. Okay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I think that is awesome. You know, Mary just looked and said, what he probably tells you to do won't make any sense. Don't think about it. You know, it's like in the army. You don't think, you just do. When they say jump, you do a whole high. You know what I'm saying? Alright? So, in his commentary, I would love to say more, but let's continue. In his commentary, William MacDonald gives us this wisdom as he writes. Her, that is Mary's words, are important ones for every one of us. Listen to this. Notice that she did not direct men to obey her or any other human being. She pointed them, that's the servants, to the Lord Jesus and told them that he was the one who should be obeyed. As we read this precious book, the Bible, we should remember the last recorded words of Mary, whatever he says to you, do it. These are the last recorded words of Mary. That's it, we don't find her speaking anywhere else ever again. But it's interesting that that was the last thing she said. Amen? Continuing on to verses 6 through 10. Now there were six water pots of stone. Now I'm going to give you some numbers here because I want you to see the magnitude of this miracle. Is that okay? Because sometimes we miss things. We miss how massive this miracle was. He didn't turn one cup into wine. It wasn't one little thing of water that went, woo, suddenly turned into wine. Listen to this, okay? And please allow me to just elaborate on this as we go. Alright, now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purifications of the Jews or for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. Alright, that's what it all means. Containing 20 or 30 gallons, which is 75 to 115 liters apiece. You're getting now the size? Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So these guys didn't just put a little bit in the bottom. They kept filling it till it was right to the top, okay? To the brim. And it says it filled them up to the brim. And from verse 6 we know that there would have been somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. Or 456 to 680 liters of water. You're getting this? And by filling them to the brim, we also understand that at the time of the miracle, the pots contained nothing but water. Also note that it was the servants that filled the water pots, not the disciples. Negating the possibility of any kind of tampering taking place. Okay, so people can't say, oh yeah, the disciples went and you know, did a little hinky-winky and threw something in there. And when they filled it, it mixed with whatever they put in there and it became wine. No, no, no. The disciples had nothing to do with this. The servants are filling the water pots. Amen? Okay. And he said to them, that's the servant, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it without tasting it or having any knowledge of the miracle that had taken place. That is an incredible step of faith. So all they have done is fill the thing up with water right up to the brim. Jesus said, take a cup and go give it to him. What would you do? Uh, no. 
You do it. <laughs> you know, I'll push somebody else in front of me. Are you kidding? This is water. I put water in that pot. I'm not going to take water to that guy. You get a bad reputation. Nobody will hire me. Did you know what that servant did? He served me water. Yeah, that's right. I don't know what he was thinking. Are you all with me? Okay, <laughs> let's keep going. When the master of the feast had tasted, meaning that he didn't just look at it, but actually tasted it. See, he didn't go, ooh, nice bouquet. All right, he tasted it. The water was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water from the well and filled the water pots knew where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, because he was responsible for, for providing all the food and drink, by the way, okay, and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. In short, when they're drunk and they don't know any different, then you give them whatever and they'll just drink it. They go, what is this? I don't know. It's green. <laughs> okay, let's drink that. What about that one? It's purple. Yeah, let's try that one too. You know, after a while, you know what I'm trying to say? Not that I have any experience. But, you know, <laughs> you know we didn't get past a certain point. Nobody knows. Okay? All right. So it was apparently a custom to hold in reserve the inferior one until the taste of the guests had been dulled sufficiently so that they would not be able to discern the flavor and the quality of the wine served last of all. But the reverse was true for this man, with the master of the feast complimenting the bridegroom and saying to him, You have kept the good wine until now. Firstly, on a molecular level, Turning water into wine not only requires the breaking of chemical bonds and the rearranging of atoms, but also the creation of atoms, namely carbon, in order to turn an inorganic substance into an organic one, which is something only God could do. All right, something had to be introduced into the thing that wasn't even there for it to turn into this, okay? Leon Mollish writes, This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. See, this is the reason why you can't take away from the miracle. Because you've got some personal moral problem or whatever. Okay? Listen. He adds that Jesus was making a bountiful wedding gift to the couple, who were evidently poor, he provided for them so that they began their married life with an unexpected asset. There will be spiritual significance also, for the sign points to the truth that Christ abundantly supplies all the need of his people. Also, we are left in no doubt as to the quality of the wine that resulted from the miracle. In other words, when God supplies our need, we can be assured that it will be of the highest possible quality. Amen? Amen? Uh, you know, it never occurred to me that they'd be able to sell that stuff off. That's why I told you how much there was. There was six pots full. They're not going to drink all of that. I don't care how good Uncle Jack is. He won't get through six pots of wine. Which means what Jesus did was give them a present. Amen? And something that you know, they, it was, that's the other reason I brought out the fact that it was a staple in that area. It was something that was normal. So if you had something of great quality, well, people will pay for that, man. Because they're having it every day. Do you hear what I'm saying? Amen. Okay. Second, as J.C. Ryle points out, duties are ours, events are God's. It is ours to fill the water pots. It is Christ's 
to make the water wine. Okay? Duties are ours. God tells you to do something, you do that. Okay? But the event is God's. He'll turn the water into wine. But you need to put water in there first. See, the problem is that we, we ask too many questions. God says, do something, do that. There's a reason behind it. Amen? Amen. <laughs> All right. So, this is where both faith and obedience are required. And what Hebrews 11.8 brings out when it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You know, before we ever leave, we get all the maps, you know, update our GPS. And, you know, we just want to know how long it's going to take and how much traffic is going to be. <laughs> Not that that was a problem to them. But, you know, we're, we're in that society where, you know, they, they say, you know, not to plan is to fail and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You all here? And, and by all means, plan stuff. And by all means, get direction from God. There are some things that we do need to plan out. Okay, others will never do. But be careful that you're not taking natural things and applying them to spiritual things when God's needing you to walk by faith and not by sight. Because you can't see something that He can see. The reason that He says have faith is He's going, it's there. Keep going. I put it there. Do you hear what I'm saying? And we're going, but I can't see. He's going, you can't see from where you are. Keep going, you'll see it. It'll be there. That's why it says, you know, while we look not at the things that are seen, but we do look at something. We look at the things that are unseen. See what I'm saying? There always needs to be vision. There always needs to be something that our focus is on. God doesn't say just go blindly to something. He says just turn your focus from that to me. Trust in me. I tell you to do something. Keep your eyes on me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Okay? Amen. Okay. So, if we insist on understanding everything that God asks us to do before we do it, we will miss out on both the miraculous and the supernatural. And why Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not or do not depend on your own insight or understanding. That is a verse for today, for this age. Amen. All right. I would love to preach on that, but let's move forward. Do I need to preach on that? You guys, we're good? Okay. All right. So returning to John chapter 2, the Apostle John rounds off the narrative with a reminder of the nature of the event, the effect it had on the disciples, and the precise location where the miracle took place. With verse 11 saying, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, that's where, and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. See, they had nothing to do with this, and they saw something happen. Amen? They just stood back and watched. And it was incredible. What's interesting is that this is an insight that no other gospel gives us. That of all the signs that Jesus performed throughout his life, this was in fact the very first sign. This is where it all started. Therefore, as William MacDonald so astutely points out, the statement that this was the beginning of signs rules out the silly miracles attributed to our Lord in his childhood, such as turning clay birds into real ones and, uh, and such like. MacDonald continues, Foreseeing this, the Holy Spirit safeguarded this period of our Lord's life and his character by this little additional note. So by saying this was the beginning, they were saying there was nothing before this. So if you heard stuff, that was just 
pure fiction and fantasy. Okay? All right. Further to this, William Hendrickson writes, the sign points away from itself to the one who performed it. Note that everything else remains in the background. Who was the bridegroom? We do not know. Who was the bride? We are not told. In exactly what relation did Mary stand to the wedded pair? Was she perhaps the aunt of bride or groom? Silence again. In the full light of day stands the Christ. All the rest is shadow. What Rembrandt did for art, John, under the Spirit's guidance, does for religion. Amen? Amen. Okay. Therefore, we begin to understand then that all the miracles recorded in the Gospel of John are meaningful. Their purpose is to show us God at work. And more specifically, that Jesus Christ is indeed God manifested in the flesh. John 1.14. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power or just neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eye of faith. By this first sign, do you all understand what all that means? Yeah, we're good, okay. By this first sign, Jesus revealed his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right? So, what we're going to see over and over again through the Gospel of John is this one fact. Whenever we see a miracle, there's something to it. I begin to understand now why. The, you know, the Apostle John, I believe, said, if we wrote all the miracles down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. So whenever he recorded a miracle, it was to do with a problem, or it was to do with something that Jesus was then going to expound on and teach as a result of it. Therefore, we begin to understand then that all the miracles recorded in the Gospel of John are meaningful again. Their purpose is to show us God at work. Let's move on. That's the reason why the Apostle John concludes in verse 11 by saying that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In his commentary, Leon Morris says that in this incident, the glory of the Messiah was revealed to some, specifically the servants and the disciples, and hidden from others, the master of the feast and the guests. And as a result, The disciples now believed in him. They had known enough about Jesus before this to follow him. Now, in this miracle, they saw his glory and they put their trust in him. In addition to this, John MacArthur writes, John relates the first great sign performed by Jesus to demonstrate his deity. The turning of water into wine. That deity means is God, okay? George identifies eight miracles in his gospel that constitutes signs or confirmation of who Jesus is. Each of the eight miracles were different. No two were alike. Beyond this, I also believe that what Jesus was looking for was for his disciples to learn from him and grow in their faith to such a point that they would fully embrace what he would say in Mark 9.23, and that is, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. To get that, I pray that you see these scriptures in a whole new light as we go through. You can understand now why Jesus kept saying, it's in you to do this. 
But you've got to believe. All things. See, that's why people say, oh, can we do this? And they say silly things about that. But Jesus, His disciples are walking around watching Him doing some unbelievable things. And He's saying, if you can believe. Do you get what I'm saying? While they're thinking, that's just unbelievable. And he's, you know, he, He's just reading their mind. And He's going, if you can believe. Oh, Jesus, don't finish that sentence. <laughs> he goes, all things are possible. We can't water that down. And we must not. We might be struggling with it, but we shouldn't water it down. Just because we're struggling with it doesn't mean it's not true. Amen? It's a long way for us to go. But let's begin the journey. Amen? Let's get there. Hallelujah. Let's be the generation when Jesus comes. He finds faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Alright. Can we leave it there for today? Okay. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed, and let's close this off in prayer.